So many of us have read the Sermon on the Mount uh, for years, but if we're to be honest, it's kind of hard to understand what exactly the meaning of the Sermon on the Mount is. Is Jesus saying that if you, uh, for instance, are meek, that you will inherit the earth? Does that mean that if you do these things, then these things will happen? Is it sort of a magic spiritual formula Jesus is giving uh, in the Beatitudes, for instance? Uh, well, here to join me is one of my favorite New Testament scholars, Dr. Jonathan Pennington, who teaches New Testament at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He was my New Testament professor and uh, really helped me understand the Gospels, particularly in a whole new and I think more biblical way. And he has a brand new book called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, a Theological Commentary. I highly recommend this book, by the way, one of the best commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount. You really should have this in your library. We talk about a lot of things. We talk about studying the New Testament, his journey into uh, the academic world, and just why he became so fascinated by Matthew's gospel, and particularly the Sermon on the Mount. So let's join Dr. Jonathan Pennington. Dr. Jonathan Pennington from Southern Seminary, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to have you on. So I had you for New Testament at Southern, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I guess I didn't remember that. Okay. Yeah, That's it, great. It, right. so it was a modular class a couple of years ago, okay. and then we came in for like the marathon day and a half. It was awesome. So, Yeah, yeah. Those and, are really enjoyable. Yeah. You know, what's funny about that is that, you know, I, I went to seminary later. You know, I pastored writing books and writing and then decided, you know, I, I don't know enough things about the Bible, so I need to go back to seminary. So I decided to do it with like four kids and mid-30s. And yeah. It can be done, by the way. But, you know, New Testament, I was looking at, you have to take New Testament. I was like, I know about the New Testament, like, you know. But, man, taking your class really uh, opened my eyes and, and taught me a lot about about the Gospels and about the New Testament. So wanted to give you a well, shout-out for that. I'm glad to hear that. that's encouraging, and that's great. Thanks. You're also, besides, besides teaching a Southern, teaching New Testament, you are the host of a really wildly popular show on YouTube where you interview people in cars. So you want to kind of share a little about that show? Sure. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Uh, well, obviously there are other way more popular shows that uh, use their cars to record things. And then obviously that was the inspiration, but uh, what this show does called cars, coffee, theology, you can just go to YouTube and put that in. And what it, what it does, it's really combines three things. I really do love. I have an old sports car, so there's really only one car involved, you know? So even though cars is in the title, it's my old Mazda RX eight. So I love to drive that around. I love really good quality coffee and we have great coffee shops here in Louisville. And especially I love talking with interesting scholars about their works. And so um, yeah, I think our 12th episode is just about to come out. That's ending season one. And basically I drive around with interesting, beautiful people and I read their books beforehand and then just talk to them about their books as well as about their cars and about their life. And, and I never know what the conversation, how the conversation is going to go, but it's uh, been a ton of fun. A ton of fun. I had your boss on there. Of course, I Russ Moore was on there. Yeah, it was fantastic. Ago. So, yeah, was so what I really want to talk with you about is, um, you're a New Testament scholar, but the area that you've focused a lot of your life's work on is the Gospels and particularly the Sermon on the Mount. And so, yep. uh, first of all, I, I just want to maybe have you share a little bit of why you've had such interest uh, first in the Gospels. Has this been a lifelong thing back when you were you were pastoring or 
uh, earlier in life, when you're in seminary, that sort of piqued your interest? Or is it something that's kind of recent? And then more specifically, why the Sermon on the Mount? Yeah, yeah, great. Uh, well, I could talk for longer than you'd want, so I'll try to keep it brief. But the short answer is no on was I always interested in the Gospels. I became a Christian at age 18, which was uh, just over 30 years ago. And actually, very typical, I think, of a lot of evangelicals in the late 20th century, which is when I became a Christian in the late 80s, um, it was all about Paul. And that there wasn't really a lot of teaching that I remember coming from the Gospels. It was mostly an emphasis on correct doctrine and thinking from Paul, which is great, and it was a great foundation, right? And we got our gospel message from Romans. You know, we weren't getting it so much from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I wasn't opposed to that, but it was all Paul, right? And so I was a seminary student at Trinity in Chicago and was planning on doing a PhD in 2 Corinthians, actually, and had a proposal up for that and was uh, very interested in a particular issue in 2 Corinthians and still love 2 Corinthians. Um, But I was teaching Greek there and saw something about the word heaven in Matthew and did an independent study with uh, D.A. Carson. And at the end of that, he said, I think you actually have something here. You should, you know, maybe think about going studying with Richard Bauckham in Scotland. And I thought, okay, well, I don't know what any of that means, but I'll figure it out. And so I ended up doing a PhD, what I thought was going to be on what we call apocalyptic literature of heaven language in Matthew, but it really ended up being a study about Matthew. And so that really... I kind of fell into it. I didn't plan on studying the Gospels. And then when I got here to Southern and started teaching uh, just 14 years ago, I was teaching Gospels, and I began to realize, wow, I love these. This is amazing, right? And so after the several year, first few years of teaching, I wrote a book called Reading the Gospels Wisely, which was really me trying to figure out what the Gospels are, how do you read them well, you know, what? how do they function? What kind of literature are they? How do they function in the Bible? What their role in the canon is? What their role in the Christian life is? And so that became that book. And uh, that was, so it was really, you know, a beautiful providence. I look back now and say, I, I think I never could have planned it this way, but I love being a gospel scholar. It's a total joy. And I never even set out to be one. So, so I'm very thankful. So, so Matthew was the focus. And then um, Sermon on the Mount was the same way. I would really say that my main area of focus for the last 15 years is 15 or 20 years has been Matthew. Sermon on the Mount has been a part of that within the last 10 years, and it was equally accidental. <laughs> like, I, I just started teaching a class on the Sermon on the Mount because it was an elective that nobody had taught in a long time. And I thought, oh, I can teach the Sermon on the Mount. I teach Matthew, you know? And like <laughs> within the first preparation for it, I realized, oh, I don't know anything about the Sermon on the Mount, really. And so, I basically engaged in a 10-year self-study of scholarship related to Matthew and the sermon, and it led to uh, ethics. I quickly realized I don't know anything about ethics. I really, you know, my my training had been just like the one basic MDiv class or something, Mm -hmm. and I didn't really know anything about the history of ethics. I didn't know anything about Greek philosophy and the virtue ethics tradition. So I basically educated myself through teaching that class mm-hmm. over several years and doing the research and then wrote a book called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, which was, again, an attempt, like Breathing Gospels Wisely was, it was an attempt for me to figure out how to think about these things. And uh, so I've been teaching about all these issues, and people kept saying to me, you really should write that down. I, You know, that, that was hmm. helpful. And so... That's how the book came into being as well. 
Yeah, the so book. I'm, the, I'm, uh, the book is fantastic. Accidental scholar. <laughs> the book is fantastic. Well, uh... It it really is, and um, I finished it. Finished reading it uh, a few months ago, and one of the things, one of the people that is, I think it's fair to say that has influenced you uh, is Richard Bauckham, right? And in, in some of his scholarship, can you kind of explain a little bit of that and how that's sort of been influenced on you, and maybe some of the others that kind of have shaped your thinking? Yeah, not probably not so much on the. Summer on the Mount book per se, but earlier for sure, I did, you know, have the great honor of doing my PhD dissertation under him on Matthew and heaven. Again, I went to study with him because I thought I was going to be studying like the language of heaven, heaven and what we call Second Temple Judaism, but uh, it ended up being a more literary study. But I think what I learned from Richard was carefulness and thoroughness in scholarship and honesty um, in all your work. Um, you know, he's just a model of a guy that is driven by discerning what is true and good. Uh, he's not driven by some agenda in scholarship. You know, some scholars are driven by, they have something they want to, you know, some ax to grind. He just is a, he is very interested in things. He's a very curious mind. And, uh, and the other thing I think I've always learned from Richard, which I'm not able to, do yet at this point is that I always describe him as a scholar on the other side of complexity. So there's an old saying that I use a lot on this side of complexity is simplistic on the other side of complexity is simple. That is that until you get into the depths of some issue, your understanding of it and your articulation of it is very simplistic, but often most of us get stuck in the complexity once you sort of become an expert in something but a few people, the real thought leaders, they're able to press through to the other side of complexity to simple. And that's what I think you see in Richard Bach. And when you read him, you realize, okay, he's digested and thought about everything on whatever the issue is. And then what he says about it is so simple and clear. And, and that's why he has such a big impact. So I don't, I can't say that that's true of me, but that's certainly what I strive for. I want to always go through the depths and end up on the other side of complexity. Mm, so mm. That's really good. So let's talk about the Sermon on the Mount, because I think it's fascinating, some of the things that you have have kind of brought out uh, and helped us think through. And, and one of the things is just maybe how poorly we, maybe English-speaking Western readers, understand this idea of when we read in, in, in the Gospels, the word blessed. And and how in our minds we think of one thing, but in, but in the, the original writers, particularly Matthew, and that time period, that Greco-Roman world, uh, the original Greek was a whole nother concept. And maybe explain how we get that wrong and and, and what are the implications for it? Um, yeah, 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 great. Um, obviously, you've read the book. I can tell by that question because that ends up being an important part of the argument of the book. But if I might get at that by just backing up one step and saying, I, my goal in writing this book called The Sermon on the Mountain, Human Flourishing, it's half commentary, half basically exploration of how to read the sermon well. So how has it been read? How should we approach it? What are some issues going on? So it's kind of a mixed genre book that once I, I got to the end of it, I thought, oh no, maybe I've made a huge mistake, <laughs> you know, because it's it's half commentary, half what we call monograph in the academic world. But it seems to be working for people. People seem to really enjoy it. So, so basically in that first half, as I'm addressing, before I get to the commentary, as I'm addressing basically issues that as I began to study the sermon, I realized that they were complex issues that um, I didn't know the answer to, and a lot of people didn't. And probably the biggest one in that is this issue 
of what this idea means that's behind the Beatitudes that, again, we in English translate as, we translate them as blessed. The Latin word is beatus, which is where why we call them the Beatitudes. The Greek word is makarios, and then the Hebrew word kind of behind that is asher or ashre. So the point is that there, there, there's a strong tradition in ancient literature that just uses this concept of ashray or makarios or beatus to describe from one person to another what true flourishing or happiness or shalom or um, again there's, there's we struggle for words here because happy is too you know too flimsy of a word um, shalom I kind of like or I don't know, but the problem is that all these other languages, or the good thing is all these languages had this way of speaking that you would describe from one person to another. You'd say, wow, it's almost like congratulations, or in Australian English, it's like the older sense of what they say down there, good on you, which means like, I'm glad for you. Now, today in Australia, that's kind of sarcastic, so that doesn't really work anymore. But the idea is, it's when you describe to someone else, this is a place of true life or life abundant or mm-hmm. something. Well, that's great in all these other languages. What I discovered is we don't exactly have a word for that in English anymore. And so we translate that in the Beatitudes as blessed. But what I came to realize through my study of the history of the interpretation of, the, of this section of Matthew, the Beatitudes, is that that word in English doesn't quite get at this concept that I just described, because I think when you and me as English speakers hear the word blessed, we immediately go to the idea that this is saying that if you do something or whatever, what well, some situation is where God blesses people. So maybe, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. We take that away to say, well, God blesses those who are poor in spirit. And that sounds like a very natural reading of, of what that verse is saying or bless, God blesses those who mourn or something. But that's actually, that may be what that would sound like in English, but that's not what the Greek or the Latin later or the Hebrew similar thing would be saying. It's instead saying, do you want to know what true happiness is or true human flourishing is? I'll tell you, Jesus says, it's actually poverty of spirit, mourning, um, you know, he's going to go on to say other things like turning the other cheek, forgiving, showing mercy to people, uh, being peace, being a peacemaker, that is not always insisting that you have to be right or win the argument, but that you make peace with people instead, um, showing mercy, all these sort of things. Uh, and ultimately, the craziest one, when you are slandered and misrepresented and persecuted for the sake of Christ, that's the ultimate state of happiness, he says. So it's crazy. I mean, it's absolutely crazy, but it's so important to understand that because otherwise you end up with a real confusion about what's going on in the Beatitudes. You end up with this idea that, okay, am I supposed to do something Mm -hmm. so God will bless me? Or is this just kind of telling me, well, some people are kind of blessed and some others and the people that are blessed are the lowly people. Is that all it's saying? No, it's, it's an invitation to come to see the world differently Mm -hmm. according to how Jesus sees it and to reorient our values and our sensibilities and our habits uh, I like to describe it this way, that Jesus is on a constant process of reorienting our values to form an alternative community whose hearts and habits are aligned with God's kingdom. That's the way I like to describe it. Yeah. And I think the Beatitudes are 
crucial part of that. So. It, it was so helpful too, because, um, you know, reading the Beatitudes, it's always, you always feel like, I think sometimes we read it almost like if I do this, then this will happen. Right. Uh, like, totally. a plug, totally how we read them. Yeah. like a plug and play thing. And it ends up not really yep. making sense because it's like, if I'm meek, I'll inherit the earth. But if I do this, I'll get something else. But the way that you describe it is that Jesus saying like, this is, this is the way of true flourishing. Like you think flourishing. Yeah, yeah, this is the good life. Yeah. Jesus welcoming us into the truly good life. And it's completely the nature of the upside down kingdom that you know, to be persecuted is actually to be invited into a deeper level of, of of flourishing than we would understand, and and all these things, and then it makes sense in terms of it's not sort of like a you know a tit for tat thing, like I do this and this happens, but it's it's yep. it's, it's a totally. more robust vision of the kind of life that Jesus is calling us into, and to me that that just turns everything on its head, um, and and in a way, you know, is kind of sobering. Because the way that we think the path to flourishing is is so much differently, you know. Um, That's right. It's power. It's glory. Mm-hmm. It's honor. Yeah. Um, success. You know. Yeah. And we so, have Christian versions of those things. Like we're not going to we say it's like over the top, but we kind of have Christian versions of that. But Jesus is actually saying the way of happiness is the low, you know, the mm-hmm. underneath way, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah. Yeah, you yeah, have well, I'm a, glad you got that. <laughs> you have a term that you call in there called macarisms or mockerisms, I think. Yeah, that's and, just an English version of the Greek word, yeah. Yeah, so, can you ex- yeah. explain what those are for for folks that might not understand what that is as a, a kind of way of speaking and communicating that maybe the the first century world understood that it would be it'd be better if we understood in order to understand the the sermon, right? Yeah, well, um I mean, I think that's what I was trying to get at by describing it as a kind of mode of speech that, again, is maybe kind of like congratulations or a description of true happiness. Um, again, it's it's one person, it's like a wise person, like a father, a wise father saying to his son or daughter, or a, a wise teacher or mentor putting their arm around the person that they're mentoring or discipling or parenting and saying, hey, I want you to think about two different ways of of how you can live out your life. And Mm -hmm. one of the ways is going to result in your joy and your happiness. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways is going to result in destruction and and not happiness. And what a macarism is, this uh, or a beatitude in Latin is where we get the term again, um, is the positive part of that, Mm -hmm. right? And so if you think about the Old Testament, of course, this is all over the place, right? You've got Proverbs Mm 1-8 is a really obvious example where a father is speaking to his son. Uh, Psalm 1 is another really good example. And interestingly, it's the same word there, the Hebrew word that's behind it. And then in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Greek word is the same. In Psalm 1, where remember it says, um, happy is the one who Mm. doesn't do these bad things, but instead his delight, so it's, it's an emotional thing too, it's not just a obedience, his delight is in the Torah, that is God's instructions for life. And then what are the two results? It's a two-ways image. One is going to be like a tree that bears fruit, and it's, and it's watered, and the other is going to be chaff that's blown away. It's the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Psalm 1 and the Beatitudes, the whole Sermon on the Mount, Proverbs 1-8, it's all inviting us to wisdom 
And again, macroisms are just the positive part of that um, kind of way of speaking. I was. I, that makes sense. It's funny. I was just going to ask you that. It seems like is is not this also the way we should read Proverbs and even some portions of James and other places that. Yep, James is wisdom literature too. Yep. Uh, again, yep. like some of the way we we read Proverbs, I think that is not helpful. Is again the kind of if I do this, this will happen. But if it seems like if you have this new mindset of this is. God inviting us into this way of flourishing and living according to the way that he ordered the world to work, right? Yep. And um, So I think of even Proverbs like, train up a child, way, way should go, how that's been abused to say that's a sort of a promise. But even like, a soft answer turns away wrath. Well, in a... In a Sometimes. <laughs> most of the time, but I've had soft answers yep. actually not result in a turning away of wrath. And so, yep. <laughs> but, but this yep. just invites us into a, just a different way of, of, of thinking and looking about this kind of literature, right? Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, that's what the biggest argument of the book is, that the Sermon on the Mount is wisdom. So it's not law, contrary to, you know, our dear Lutheran brethren's brethren, and it's not even exactly how the Reformed tradition has tended to read it, which is kind of third use of the law. Mm-hmm. I would suggest to you, it's wisdom. Now, again, that's not opposed to law. I'm not trying to say wisdom and law in the Bible are mm-hmm. completely separate. They certainly do overlap with each other, for sure. Um, but there are there is kind of a different mode of discourse or a different way of speaking that we can kind of describe as an invitational way to, here's how I'd like to sum up, a, an invitation to see the world in a certain way and be in the world in a certain way. And so that's what the Sermon on the Mount really is. And so once you see it that way, it doesn't become this really burdensome thing that shows you how bad you are and that you just need to flee to Christ because you could never do all these good things. I mean, that's true. We can never earn God's favor, but that's not at all what the Sermon on the Mount is trying to do. It's actually trying to cast a vision for us from our Lord um, to show us how to see the world differently than we tend to, and then how to be a disciple of His by living in the way that He Himself models and He Himself teaches, because that alone will will bring us into the life that we long for. So that's that's the big point of the book, I think, that I'm trying to get across. Okay, two more questions. Man, I could talk all day about this stuff. One, curious if you have a word of wisdom uh, for pastors when they're preaching through the Sermon on the Mount? That's that's first question. Then I have a, another question after that. Sure. Yeah, well, it's been really encouraging. I get lots of emails um, and tweets and other things from people uh, telling me they are preaching through the sermon, and that's exciting. And actually, at my church, we're, pre- we're preaching through Matthew, and uh, we're, we've been in the sermon for several weeks now. I just last Sunday preached uh, 7, 1 to 6, the Judge Not, which was a challenge, and I preached the Attitudes and preached the law before that, and uh, in a couple of weeks I'm preaching again. Um, so I care very much about that. I mean, that's the ultimate reading of the Bible, isn't it, is preaching it. Like, I feel like that's that's where we, that's when we've arrived, when we actually open Holy Scripture and, and teach it to ourselves and to others. And so it's a joy. So I would say when you're doing the Sermon on the Mount, the first thing I'd say is, do read good commentaries, but secondly, um, probably take bigger sections than you're used to. Um, and so, and this is, I think, true of re- preaching all the Bible. I think we probably preach, we tend to preach too atomistically or microscopically 
which is not really how literature works, how texts work. And with the Sermon on the Mount, too. So, for example, when you get to the Beatitudes, most people spend seven, eight, nine weeks in the Beatitudes, 10 weeks, 13 weeks in the Beatitudes. That's fine. There's absolutely nothing wrong with doing that. But um, because you can go through each of them and, and you know, there's a ton of value in that. So that's great. I think there's also a lot of value in preaching them as one message. That's a little bit more challenging, but that's what I did recently because I think you you only see some things when you take the larger section altogether, particularly in this case, that all the Beatitudes together are forming this vision for, again, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what is true happiness. And so, um, and also 517 to 48, which is the section of six parts of, you've heard it said, I, I say to you, when Jesus does that interaction with Torah, I preached all that as one message as well, which I'll admit was a challenge. Um, but I just think there's a lot of good to taking larger sections. Not only will it help you not get, you know, so bogged down that half the people have already been, you know, dead and buried by the time you get through the Sermon on the Mount or something, but also because, again, you see things that you wouldn't see if you take larger sections, I think. That's really good. And I guess just one other quick little tip on preaching. Um, Always remember that Jesus is never teaching us, nor should our sermons motivating us by guilt. He's not motivating us. He's inviting us to life. And so every sermon, even something like seven, one to six, do not judge us, you be judged. I made sure that I even said this explicitly at the end of the sermon, you could, somebody was interested, they could find it on Sojourn East's um, sermon archive. You know, the, the, the point of this is not to make us feel bad that we failed in this. That's true. And if you feel conviction, that's a gift from God, but it's to, cast a vision for us and invite us to say the ways you're living of judging other people or whatever other issues he's addressing, there's no life there. And so he's inviting us to say, come and, and follow in my ways because my ways will truly give you life. And so in every section of the sermon, I would make sure in the whole Bible, I would say, but make sure that you are as a preacher, inviting people into goodness and joy and beauty, not shaming people, burdening people, guilting people, dutying people. I mean, you can preach that way. That's called being a Pharisee, right? What Jesus preaches is he invites people to life, always. Mm -hmm. One of the things that was really great, taking your class on the Gospels and reading on the Sermon on the Mount and studying, is one of the things you you really taught me to do is to see how how the Old Testament sort of frames and shapes the New Testament, or reading of the Gospels, something I never really saw before. So for instance, you know, Jesus giving the part of the sermon is like sort of the new Moses giving giving the new law, and and just sort of ways that you, you teach us to kind of see, even in the way the chapters are arranged there, um, echoes of the Old Testament. So I, I guess my question is, as we're reading the Gospels, how do we see this? How do we see this well? How do we see the Old Testament shape the, the New Testament well? Old Testament, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a life journey, isn't it? Um, where we, the more we familiarize ourselves with the whole Bible, the more interconnections we'll see. And so as we're on that journey, we can get help from other people, good commentaries, your little cross-references in your Bibles, other people's sermons, things like that will help us see those connections. But the most important thing is just to keep reading the whole Bible with an open heart and open eyes to always be asking, how does this all connect together? Because God is the author of all the scripture. I mean, he's the 
he's the real author behind Daniel and Isaiah and Genesis and Matthew and Revelation. And so there are always going to be these connections that go beyond even what the author, human authors were able to see or anticipate, as First Peter reminds us as well. So I just think keep reading the whole Bible with an open heart and eyes to ask what is connected. And you'll begin to see a lot of a lot of connections that you wouldn't before. Um, and as you're doing that, you know, get helps. <laughs> get helps from scholars and pastors who are, you know, have had the opportunity and the luxury to kind of study these things. Um, hope that is what you're asking. I'm not sure. That's that's great. That's what you're asking or not. And yeah. and alternatively, you could you could enroll at Southern and take your class. Um, well, there's that. I mean, that's the <laughs> obvious answer. I thought right. you wanted a more complicated answer. Right? So, <laughs> yeah. hey, hey, can I just say say I know we're probably over time, but I because of my long windedness, but. I've got a couple books I'm working on that your yes. viewers might be interested in that come right out of what we've said. One is, uh, these are all temporary titles because sometimes publishers change your titles, mm-hmm. but one is called Jesus, the Great Philosopher, Rediscovering What It Means to Be Fully Human, and the other one, Jesus, the Disciple Maker. And in both of these books, I'm going to be unpacking a lot of things I was saying here mm-hmm. about specifically how how Jesus' teachings are an invitation for us to enter into fullness of life, not in a health and wealth gospel way, obviously, but in a true life of discipleship. And uh, so in both those books and some others I'm working on, that's what I'm hoping to do more. So I just thought you might be interested in hearing that. So That's great. And uh, we'll, we'll definitely push those when they come out. And I want to encourage people to get your your book that is out, uh, the Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. We'll have links on uh, the, the show notes page, but Dr. Pennington, thanks Great. for joining us. I appreciate it. And we'll- uh, uh, Truly my honor. I'm really, really pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. You can catch previous episodes on danieldarling.com. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster and scheduling by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.